HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink, inspiring public curiosity about food. Learn more at mofad.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we are just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Alan Meadows. We'll talk to Alan about Burgundy and his new book. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Alan Meadows made the shift from finance to fine wine. He is the definitive independent voice of Burgundy and its leading expert and critic. Alan Meadows is... The Berghound, and publishes Berghound.com, a quarterly review and online site for Burgundy and Pinot enthusiasts. Alan just published his new book, Burgundy Vintages, A History from 1845. It's an essential reference book for Burgundy enthusiasts. Alan also covers California, Oregon, and some champagne. Alan, welcome to the Grape Nation. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Great. We got a lot to talk about, Alan, so let's see if we could stuff it in uh, this, al- uh, this hour. The first thing I want All you right, to do... All right, I'm ready for the challenge. Okay, that's a challenge for you, because you know a lot. Um, the first thing I want to do is I want the audience to get a sense of you know who you are. So give us a little background on your journey um, in life and wine that really got to where you are today, which is... The Berg Hound and your current book—it's a—it's a good story. So, let's hear it. 
that's sort of like saying, uh, well, when I was three, I did this. No, you know, no, start, start, you know, in business no, and all. No, that. no, 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 I was just uh, I know. I'm just kidding. I know. Um, I, I scraped my knee and my brother hit me. You know, go ahead. Yeah, exactly, um, which turned everything around. Right. No, I started life uh, professionally anyway as uh, an aspiring uh, finance guy, and that actually worked out okay, and I spent quite a while doing that, but it afforded me the opportunity to travel quite a bit. Right. And when I was getting my MBA, I actually had already been bitten by the uh, the wine sickness and took a part-time job in a little wine store just so I could be around it. And really? I happened to taste a, a great wine from the Domaine de Romani Colonti. I mean, I didn't know anything, but I thought it was great. And it was from <laughs> Good a, a vintage that wasn't, as it turns out, nothing special, but it so impressed me that I said to myself that you have to go and see the people and the land that created this form of beauty that I had never seen before, never even imagined existed. I mean, I tried a few wines that I thought were pretty good, but nothing that really uh, was, you know, in, the, in wine geek speak, that proverbial aha moment right. that really makes you sit up and notice and say, you know, there's, there's really something here. And so as soon as I had my MBA in hand, I went off to uh, Europe and I went to Burgundy and I was just going to travel around for a while, but I wound up staying there. And from that point forward, every time I got a chance to go to Burgundy, I started doing that because I was young and not married at the time. And so I had a fair amount of flexibility and I started to learn a little bit about it get a network of of domains and people I knew over there. One thing led to another. Um, fast forward a little bit, things uh, with my professional career worked out okay, and but eventually I sort of got tired of finance and was looking around for something else to do, and I had this idea about being a wine critic, but just doing one thing, and that was Burgundy at the time. Right. And... I sent my idea of starting a, a wine review, but just doing one thing, but in a whole lot of depth to 20 of my Berg Geek friends, and all of them basically said the same thing, which was, hey, that's a great idea, but it'll never work. Um, <laughs> it's too narrow. It's too focused. It's too geeky. Um, you're not going to take any ads. You're not going to have pictures. You know, there's just raw information is not enough. But I decided to do it anyway, and 19 years later, still here. So it's amazing Alan, that sometimes was... how little tiny ideas can work. And I really credit the uh, the internet for making a small idea like this work because I didn't have to have a subscriber base of 50,000 in order to make a print-based publication work. Right. So that was in 2000 because you said 19 years, right? Is about when you launched Correct. it, and the That's internet exactly was right. just starting to happen then. So that, like you said, that was a big part of helping launch the idea to the masses, or at least the enthusiasts. Correct. Correct, because there were a couple of things that all came together at more or less the same time. One was the increasingly widespread usage of the internet to obtain information. Right. Uh, by consumers. Secondly, was a secure payment system. 
because if it's not that long ago, but if you remember, there were all these articles about impending doom that if you buy things online, uh, you know, you'll never see your credit card again. And they managed to get that reasonably secure. And the third thing was desktop publishing, where you didn't need a sophisticated office of designers in order to put together a publication that was reasonably readable. And so when you put those three things together, it made something that was heretofore um, almost impossible for a would-be small publisher to actually be able to create something and do so economically such that you could earn a living from it. So let me ask you about the last two things, the third being desktop publishing. That was you that had the opportunity to sit in front of a program and publish your own newsletter. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Um, you could do it in such a way that you could create a document that was secure and that it couldn't easily be changed. I mean, there's right. always a hack. Yeah. But generally, you can create something um, that couldn't easily be changed, and you could do it in a way that made it user-friendly so that a very long document, for example, the average document that I publish each quarter is more than 200 pages. And so you have to have a way to... Right be able to navigate around a document that's large so that people just don't have to scroll and scroll and scroll. And right. uh, the, the publishing options that they embed in the various programs enable users to do that. With, more more uh, user-friendly. And on the payment right, thing, exactly. I mean, it's as obvious as it sounds, right? People were just hesitant to do any kind of commerce whether it was a site like yours or a product, because they were afraid to put their card out in the Internet, correct? Right. And the encryption systems that uh, they developed over time and have gotten better and better, even though um, you know the hackers are never too far behind, right. uh, so enabled me to accept payments from people all over the world. And today, Berghound is distributed. In fact, it's one of the aspects of this whole thing that continue to amaze me, but it's distributed in 68 different countries. And if I was exclusively a mail-based publication, that would never, ever be possible. Right. So <laughs> kudos to the Internet, um, which is a great thing, and obviously the timing was great. Um, let's talk a little about Burgundy. Um, you said, you have said, that great wine is wine that transforms Explain to me what that means. Well, to make it simple, um, great wine has, has a number of characteristics, but one of them is exactly what you just cited, which is the ability to transform, because there would be no point in buying and cellaring wine if it wasn't going to change for the better. Right. Um, some wines simply do what I call endure, which is you know, 20 years later for just to choose a time frame. They are still there. They're still intact, but they're not necessarily any more interesting then than they were when they were bottled. And I think that great wines, irrespective of grape variety or region, have the ability to transform into something much more interesting than they were than when they were originally bottled. Right. Now, I, I, this question may be too obvious, but, I mean, does Burgundy do that better than any other wine, or it does it well and other wines do it well too, or does Burgundy stand out? Is it a transforming wine more than others? 
I don't know that it's necessarily better at transforming than other regions or other grape varieties, but it has an uncanny ability to become much more interesting at the time. And one of the things about Great Burgundy is that you can't easily capture it. It's constantly changing in the glass, and so you have a snapshot, and then you look at it again two minutes later, and it's morphed into something else. And it does all of this in a way that, if not better, then it certainly is among the very, very best. And it, it does this um, in a package that isn't necessarily super dense or super tannic, um, right. because a lot of wines that um, transform over time do so by losing structure, and certainly Burgundy does that as well. But Burgundy, at least fine red Burgundy, isn't a monster of concentration or structure. In right. other words, it's not Bordeaux or California Cabernet, which uh, or Syrah-based wines, Hermitage, etc., etc. That's not its forte is, is power. Its forte is finesse and elegance and refinement, as well as an incredible ability to go well with food. Right, so it's a it's a great food wine, as much or more than any other one. Um, I I think there's no region like Burgundy, and let's talk about that a little. I mean, a few things come to mind that I want to talk to you about. Um, there's this physical geographic part of it that you know I need you to explain. I mean, there there's no wine region where the the land is parceled out, it's broken up, the same guy has property. Just talk to me about, not the terroir, the soil, but just, you know, how the vineyards, how it came to that. Well, it, uh, the major driver of that uh, is basically twofold. It's more complicated than that, but um, without uh, driving your listeners to drink here. Um, <laughs> it's not a bad if, thing. If we just remain uh, looking for the major drivers of change, uh, or to explain why you have this incredibly small mosaic of the vineyards. Uh, the first reason is that if we stick just to the Côte d'Or for a moment, rather than talking about Chablis, the Côte Chalonaise, or the Maconnais, if we remain with the Côte d'Or, it's basically incredibly small to begin with. And then bring in the Napoleonic Code that was adopted in 1804, where all siblings got an equal share of an already very, very small pie. Uh, it didn't take very many generations for something that was small to begin with to become very, very small. And it's one of the structural problems of Burgundy today is how you can take something that isn't very large, divide it up into two, three, sometimes four or even more pieces and have that be economically viable. It often isn't. And it is one of the, the problems confronting Burgundy today, uh, not only from the standpoint of economics in terms of the way we would think about it, uh, it, specifically, how much can I produce from this tiny piece of land that enables me to pay um, my salaried workers, my expenses, and, and to successfully commercialize a product. But there's another aspect that is more simple, but just as important, which is that it's easier for white wine, but for red wine, it becomes a technical challenge to make 
consistently high-quality red wine from very, very small quantities. And the major driver behind that is heat management, because if you don't have the appropriate amount of heat, you can't get appropriate um, color extraction, tannic structure, et cetera, et cetera, so that you're making something that can age. Um, by contrast, if you don't control the heat on the other side, meaning it gets too warm, then your fermentation finishes so fast that, again, you don't obtain the requisite raw materials into your wine so that they can successfully age. Is that is that more of an issue with Pinot Noir? Um, is it a, a tougher grape um, to make wine from? Um, your instincts do you credit, uh, seriously, <laughs> because uh, Pinot Noir is a naturally thin-skinned grape. Now, okay. you can have thicker skins when it's hot because the thick skins develop as an evolutionary defense against um, extreme heat um, or sunlight. And so it's not to say that Pinot Noir is incapable of developing a thick skin, but it's relatively rare. Right. The point being that if you have a thin-skinned grape where all of your... Um, color and for the most part of your structural elements, in particular tannins. I mean, there are seeds, you have stems, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But those aside for a moment, when you're looking for uh, the coloring matter as well as the uh, the structural um, support to come from skins that are thin, you need a certain amount of contact with the fermenting must in order to get that. Right. And if your fermentation time, uh, what they call the couvaison, is too short, then you can't get that. And therein lies the, uh, the problem. Right. What if it's too long? It's, um, well, if it's too it long, that's generally a, a decision, uh, or just to be blunt about it, an error um, by okay. a winemaker. Because if... Um, you let it go too long, you generally start to um, extract less desirable tannins. Um, if we, and this is going to get really geeky, so stop me if it's too geeky, but you have various elements that can contribute tannins, um, leaving aside an oak barrel for just a moment. Right. Um, but most of what they call noble tannins, if we were to rank order them, um, you have tannins that come from the skins, the second source of tannins that are neither normal but not necessarily rustic or undesirable either come from the stems if they are used. Right. And in Burgundy today, about half the growers use them. The other half use some proportion. And the third, and this is where you can get into trouble very easily in terms of making it an unbalanced and or bitter wine, come from the seeds. And to your point about a long cuvaison, uh, sometimes being the problem is that alcohol, because it's constantly rising during the fermentation, is a very strong solvent. And that solvent, um, as the cuvaison progresses, the seeds become softer and softer and more fragile. And unless you have a really hot vintage, um, those what they call seed tannins generally are pretty bitter. And so you not, don't really want them, good, and that's yeah. why people are generally careful about not, not letting their fermentations go for too long. 
Now, you made a, a point in the middle of there, your second point. I think what you were talking, I know you were talking about um, whole cluster and destemming. Um, mm-hmm. Explain to people what that is. Some winemakers take the cluster of grapes, Henri Jair, just work with the grapes. Explain, just go over that quickly with, with me and the effect that that has on the wine. I think we covered it a little because with stems, more tannins, but it's a big thing in Burgundy. It, it really is. Um, in fact, I would say that over the last 10 years, it is the most controversial okay. uh, change relative to, say, the 1980s. Um, you cited one of the great winemakers in Burgundy's history of Henri Jaillet. And just to let readers, or my own uh, <laughs> um, listeners know, um, that Henri Jaillet was completely against uh, the use of stems. Um, on the other hand, you have the Domaine de la Romanicolti, uh, Domaine Dujac, uh, Domaine Lois, um, who use at least some proportion of stems every year. And uh, the good news in all of that, and then I'll get um, specifically to, uh, to the differences between using them and not using them and what they represent, um, but all four of the domains that I cited, which were Jaé in his day before he passed away in 2006, and then Domaine de Romani-Conti, Dujac, Loire, um, it's impossible to argue credibly that all of them um, don't make fantastic wines. And True. to me, that says that making great Burgundy is less about technique uh, than it is about terroir, respect for the land, and really, really good viticulture. Um, so you can make good Burgundy with and without stems. With that being said... Uh, making wine, making red burgundy with stems um, has a lot of pros and cons. Um, first of all, um, you have to be sure that your viticulture is um, really, really state-of-the-art because if it's not, the stems are not going to be clean. And so the last thing you want to do is because stems tend to be a magnet for rot, for botrytis. And so you have to be really careful that if you're going to use them, um, that they're clean. Second thing is that it can also be a source of green tannins. If you've ever had herbaceousness in right. wine, Vegetal. which most people, including me, don't like, right. uh, then in a vintage where ripeness levels are perhaps not even average, you probably don't want to use very much. Um, by the way, I should point out to listeners that this is not an all-or-nothing equation. You can have zero, you can have 100%, but now you can choose how much uh, of the stems, what percentage that you choose to employ. After that, then you have a variety of technical elements. I'll just tick them off very quickly. Um, stems uh, tend to be... A, a, deacidifier because they release potassium into the must. They also absorb color. They absorb uh, alcohol. So you almost always have a lighter colored wine if there is a significant proportion of stems. This is to say more than roughly 50%. Um, The other side of it, though, is, is that it imparts a spiciness 
to a spiciness and floral elements to the nose, which many people, including myself, find to be highly attractive. And then the, the other element, which is what you um, cited yourself just a moment ago, is that depending on how it's vinified, it can be another source of tannin, which adds to longevity. If you boil all that down for a moment and say, what is the major pro and con is that generally wines made with stem require longer um, to be approachable. And so um, for those who like the immediacy of fresh fruit, um, it may be that wines made with a significant proportion of whole cluster wouldn't be their cup of burgundy, at least not right away. Right. Um so stylistically, I mean, the winemaker chooses what they want to do, and the consumer, you know, can decide what styles they like. Um, it, it's interesting. Um, the other interesting thing to me is, I mean, Burgundy is just a region basically with singular grapes. There's basically a singular red grape and a singular white grape. I mean, I can't think of any other region, you know, with such prominence. Um, relies on those two grapes and Pinot Noir, you know, being the more dominant. Um, can you think of any other area? I mean, that's Burgundy's wheelhouse, right? Yeah, it is. I mean, you can get uh, other regions that are what they call monocépage, which is just simply uh, a French word saying it's a, a singular grape variety. Um, there are a couple. You could look at Cote Roti, um, which you could say, okay, have a little bit of Viognier, but even that's right. to 15%. Right. And so that would be one. Um, the, the great regions of the Moselle, the Saar, the Rangiao tend Riesling. to be 100% Riesling. Right. So it's not as though they don't exist, but um, they are definitely in the minority. Most wines, um, be they red or white, generally have some combination of, of grape varieties in them rather than being exclusively from one grape. Right. I mean, even in the U.S., for example, you, know, you can call some things Infidel or Pinot Noir, but you have the right to blend up to 25% of another grape variety and still use the dominant grape variety on the label. Um, Burgundy gives you up to 15%, but there are a lot of restrictions. And so if you see Pinot Noir on the label, it's telling you that it's Pinot Noir, or for that matter, if it says Chardonnay, the same, uh, the same restrictions apply. Right. Um, so you're saying you can, in Burgundy, you can blend up to 15% of... Of, of other specifically permitted grape okay. varieties. Okay. So, for example... You could, if you had them co-planted, uh, you could have Chardonnay or Pinot Gris or Gamay. Right. Uh, but most of the best wines, usually the only time you see that is at what they call the regional level. And 95% of all regional wines in Burgundy have Bourgogne on the label. Right. There's a few exceptions in the Macronet, and it's not worth going into because it'd be the tail wagging the dog. Uh, but usually when you have um, something else in it, uh, it's at the regional level. Right. Um, and you said Bourgogne, and that we'll talk about that in a few minutes, but that's a good entry-level wine. Um, 
talk to me about terroir. Um, is Burgundy is the soil? Tell me what the soil is and how much it varies. And is it perfect for growing Pinot Noir, or is it challenging? You know, does it make the wine so unique, the terroir? Well, it, basically, you could think about, I mean, to invoke uh, Matt Kramer's uh, definition, I have a, a slightly different one, but I think Matt uh, is an extremely good one, which is the terroir is that sense of somewhere-ness, um, meaning right. that it's telling you that it's from here and not over there. Um, t- to me, that is the brilliance of coming back to your prior point about a wine region that is essentially married to two grape varieties. Again, a couple of exceptions. Right. Essentially two grape varieties, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. And as, as a result, you don't have, for lack of a better word, noise being introduced by the inclusion of a second grape variety that would express itself and add characteristics to a wine that might blur the underlying message. And so for me, at least, terroir is what that specific piece of dirt has to say. And we tend, I think, as consumers to view terroir as something uh, magical, but I would argue that it's actually fairly banal in that every piece of dirt that is delimited in some fashion has something to say. The difference is that much of what Burgundy has to say is interesting. And I've got terroir in my backyard here, but right. it has nothing interesting to say. Right. And so it, didn't, it wouldn't matter what you planted there, and no matter how carefully you attended to the grapes and how carefully you vinified them, in the end, you'd wind up with something that wasn't very interesting. And so I think that it's Burgundy's blessing um, to have terroir that has something interesting to say. Um, They use that single grape variety, which I tend to view as a bit of a lie detector because um, Pinot Noir in particular is so exquisitely sensitive to how it's farmed and how it's made um, that you can relatively easily see um, what's going on. And one of the interesting aspects, um, and I've written extensively on this um, from a historical standpoint, is that why the tradition was established of using only one grape variety and why it persisted, because it runs squarely in the face of a whole lot of very, very good reasons not to do that, in particular economic, but we could cite other reasons right. why it's not a great idea to do that, and yet... Um, while there have been deviations over time, essentially 2,000 years or perhaps even longer have gone by, and Pinot Noir has been the dominant grape variety um, for a very, very long time. And when you consider um, how long this has been going on, and again, for all of the economic reasons that I could cite as to why this really isn't, if you if your goal is to make the most money, right, it's not um, that you wouldn't do that. Right. Um, two things, and then we're going to take a break, come back, talk a little more, and I want to talk about the book um, in a little detail with you. Um, okay. 
comment on both of these. I mean, are the effects of climate change and global global warming, you know, having a major effect on the region? And um, I think Burgundy was always a region where sustainability, organics, and all that were important. But there was a time when it wasn't. Where are things at today as far as um, how the vignerons farm and their challenges with uh, global warming or climate change? What's your thoughts on that? It's a great question because you get together with almost any winemaker and you talk for more than 15 minutes. That's a topic that eventually surfaces and with good reason. Let me start by saying uh, about global warming that I believe that if there is any wine region in the world um, that has benefited the most from global warming, it's Burgundy. At least that, that's an Burgundy. interesting I'm comment and statement. I'm less persuaded it's been such a great idea for white Burgundy, but that's, uh, okay. that's a separate topic because Burgundy historically has been about at the... Uh, the farthest uh, northern point to which great red wine could be consistently produced. But anybody that's been following Burgundy for very long knows that it wasn't all that long ago when you had a series of vintages that typically did not get ripe or were affected by rot or other technical problems such that their resulting product was drinkable but not necessarily great. Um, in order to obtain ripe fruit, obviously sunshine um, and clement weather is important. But one of the things that they had to battle against in the past was how to fight against rot, how to fight against mildew, um, how to fight against certain pests, um, how to eliminate um, the competition um, in the vineyards with um, weeds and and other herbs that are not desirable in the context of being in a vineyard, um, and what is the best way to eliminate those. And some people resorted to mechanical um, methods such as plowing. Um, Others have tried biodynamic farming. Some have tried pheromones to confuse um, (laughs) the insects, prevent them from mating. But there have also been periods, specifically in the 60s and 70s, where very strong chemicals, some people still insist on using them today, uh, were, were consistently applied. And Claude Bourguignon, who um, is a soil scientist uh, and is famously known for having commented, uh, perhaps somewhat, uh, he went too far, he exaggerated the point, to make a point, which is right. that the soils of the Sahara had more life in them than the uh, the soils of Burgundy. Now, that may have <laughs> well, been a, a little too much, but yeah. it makes the point that after years of dumping chemicals and fertilizers and herbicides and pesticides, uh, because it was cheaper and easier and quicker, uh, it didn't do any anything any good for the soils in which the vines were um, growing in. And happily, the generation that uh, came to power in Burgundy in the uh, 80s and 90s decided to change most of that. And this isn't to say that there aren't some people who still farm that way, but they are in the distinct minority today. Right. Um, 
and on the climate change thing are are um, vineyards being farmed earlier or later? Um, what's the well, they are there? being farmed differently. Differently, um, there's a great Alan, deal I, of, of I, debate right now as to um, about trellising. Because for a long time, uh, Burgundy um, trellised uh, their vines very low to the ground. Explain what trellising is so people know. Um, yes, trellising is how you train your vines above the ground. Um, right. You will see, for, for those listeners that may be familiar um, with vineyards in, say, California or Oregon, uh, they tend to be trained fairly high off of the ground. Almost like a canopy, wants... right? What's that? I'm sorry? Like a canopy? Yes. The, um, canopy management is what the whole process is right. is called. Um, but you can train high, you can train low. Um, in Burgundy, historically, they trained low um, right. because they wanted the heat that the earth absorbed during the day that would then radiate at night. Right. And so that helped ripen the fruit. Today, people are questioning whether they shouldn't train higher because they don't necessarily want the warmth from the ground in some vintages. Interesting. But, you know, um, trellising something, you have to actually have wires uh, to do that. And you can't easily change what's going on, especially let's say your spring was very cool and rainy where you might want that warmth. Um, then the middle of the summer, it turns into the dog days of summer, and now all of a sudden you wish, well, geez, I'd like to right. train higher now. You're either all yeah. in or not. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. And But I, I would say that there is, uh, on the margin right now, a movement to train higher. Got you. Um, so that is just one um, small adaptation among any number of others uh, in response to... Um, vintages where harvest dates, they're beginning sooner um, and they are ending sooner. I mean, in the entire 20th century, there was no vintage that started in August. And yet in the 21st century, we've already had five. And that's not a statistical accident. No, no, no. I mean, there's an indication right there. Incredible. Right. Um, Alan, we have to take a quick break. We're talking to Alan Meadows. Alan is the Berg Hound. Um, When we come back, uh, we'll talk about a few other things, and I want to talk to Alan about his new book. You're listening to The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. Featuring a variety of interactive displays, MOFAD encourages eaters of all ages to be curious about food. The museum currently operates MOFAD Lab, a 5,000-square-foot experimental space in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where Chow, making the Chinese-American restaurant, is currently on show until the end of March 2019. This exhibition celebrates the birth and evolution of Chinese-American restaurants, tracing their nearly 170-year history and sparking conversations about food culture, immigration, and what it means to be American. It highlights the evolution timeline of Chinese-American restaurant menus, dating back to 1910, and also highlights a tasting section where participants get to enjoy tastings created by the country's most talented chefs who specialize in Chinese-American cuisine. 
make sure you check out Chow while you still can. The exhibition closes at the end of March 2019. Check out MOFAD's tastings and extensive event calendar at mofad.org events. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Lisa Held, and I'm the host of The Farm Report here on HRN. The Farm Report is a show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. Expect from the field insights as guests explore how producing fresh, delicious food relates to environmental and community sustainability, justice, and better health. You can find The Farm Report wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Okay, we're back. We're back with my guest, Alan Meadows. Alan Meadows is the Berghound. Um, Alan, before we talk about the book, just help me and my listeners um, with this. We know that burgundies become so expensive and in most cases very inaccessible. Help us navigate how to find reasonable quality and accessible burgundy. What should we look at? Where should we go? I mean, we mentioned Borgogna. That may be one of the answers. But how can the rest of us drink burgundy? That is also a great question. And uh, for once, when it comes to burgundy and prices, can have some fairly good news in the sense that if you focus on the top 25 domains that everybody else seems to focus on, well, it's true. It's incredibly expensive. In fact, uh, the word insane comes to mind. I True. I don't quite understand why um, there seems to be this fascination with so few um, producers. Do they make great wine? Yes, they do. But the difference between what they make and what many others make, um, when you're looking at a price coefficient of three, four, five times more, to me, doesn't reflect the quality that's in the bottle. Um, is, is it fun to open a bottle from the domain of what you call tea or sure. Russo or Rubier or Devogue or, or the, you know, the, the great name? Sure it is. But if your goal is to drink well for reasonable on a consistent basis, then I think Burgundy has um, still has a great deal to offer and offer um, something that gives you good um, price quality um, value. So how do we how do we find that? I mean, what do we look for? I mean, I. I totally get your point stay away from the top 25 you know highest rated producers which tend to be you know expensive and and you know low output so where do we look do we look at certain regions do we look at um borgogna um well i will start by saying um shameless 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 um commercial message um coming you could always subscribe to uh, Berghound because well, I... We'll get to that, Alan. I, I mean, I want my people... No, 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 no. I'm actually just kidding. It um, doesn't matter. No, but I, I mean it sincerely. I want everyone, obviously, to know. But finish what you were saying. Um, just that uh, you don't want to bring a knife to a gunfight. Um, right. So good advice um, is, 
essential, whether it's from me or any of my other colleagues, um, is almost beside the point. But I think um, that people that do it professionally are trying to um, find um, gems that are undiscovered. But if we speak in broad lines, uh, then on the white side, uh, I've been pounding this message for a while, and while prices have gone up, some, I think they still remain pretty reasonable relative to the quality that's in the bottle, and that's Chablis. Okay. So if refreshing, crisp, racy whites um, with good minerality are what you're after, then Chablis um, represents a pretty good price point. You can start at around 25 Now, granted, they have superstars there, too, and you right. can spend a whole lot of money for those. But even a good Premier Crew today... Um, is $40. And while I appreciate that $40 isn't something you're going to open every day of the week, um, it's not prohibitive. Right. Um, the other possibility um, is to go to the Maquinet. Um, and even good Pouy Fusse is, again, it's around $40. Right. So it gives you a different style of, of white. Um, there are others, by the way. There are good uh, Macon Village, another appellation that's very large, and while quality is sometimes disparate, um, you can find very good price points with Saint-Verhal. Um, that's V-E-R-A-N. So it's Saint, like the, the right. saint, um, and then Verhal. And you can usually find those at 25 or $30. And if you get a good one, they have reasonably good distinction. Um, you can drink them young. It's not necessary to spend um, a lot of money. If you want to stick to the Côte d'Or, and you don't want to spend um, more than $50, then you're probably going to be limited to regional wines. Um, again, right. those are ones that are indicated on the label with Bourgogne, uh, or such appellations as Saint Aubin, um, Bone, um, Savigny Les Bones. Um, it's mostly red, but still they make some whites. Um, but it's more difficult than the Cote d'Or. So if you're looking for um, high-quality white wines at affordable prices, the best places to look for the most part are in Chablis, the Maquinet, and then there are, is um, in the Cochalones. There are two um, areas that I would point you to, which are if you enjoy the Aligoté grape, the Bouzeron. Right. Um, or um, for Chardonnay-based wines, then there is one called Rouilly, which is R-U-L-L-Y. And again, very good price-quality ratio. You'll rarely spend more than $50, and most of them can be found for 25 to 35 On the red side, um, the red side is Tougher? still doable, but it's not as easy. And okay. there's a, a simple fundamental structural reason for that, which is that the yields for good Pinot-based wines, in order to make good Pinot-based wines, are 50% lower than they are for Chardonnay. Ah. And so just from the standpoint of the raw materials that are going in to make the wine, um, you um, have less of it um, than you do with Chardonnay. And so that's why when I mean, just to choose an example, if you go to Trader Joe's uh, here in California, they have big selections of a lot of things. You can still get 
a decent cab or zin um, based wine for ten, twelve dollars. It's very hard to buy um, good quality Pinot for less than twenty. Right. And again, it's simply um, a structural um, issue with the amount that can be grown. Again, because it's thin-skinned um, Pinot Noir is um, that you have this economic detriment. However, if we go back to Burgundy for a moment, you can still buy um, very good quality red Burgundy in areas such as Saint-Denis, um the Mirage. Sa- Alan, Saint-Denis, S-A-N-T-A-N-E-Y? How do we- yes. Okay. So Saint-Denis, keep going. And then uh, it's called the Marange, which is M-A-R-A-N-G-E-S. Okay, Marange. Um, and then this is kind of a mouthful, but it's called Savigny Les Bonnes, um, which is S-A-V-I-G-N-Y. And then there's a hyphen, L-E-S, hyphen, bone, like, uh, like the city. Right, B-E-A-U-N-E. And uh, itself. Um, and... You are probably starting at 30 to 35, and then if you get into some of the, the better primer crews, um, you can easily spend 50, 60, $75, but it's not necessary. And one of the things that I think beginners, uh, burgundy beginners, neophytes, uh, have to convince themselves of is that everybody wants to explore the Grand Cruz because that's where the supposed excitement is. Right. It, it is. Um, on the other hand, that's not where you're going to find value. If it says Grand Cru on the label, it starts at 150 and goes up. So <laughs> okay. that's not the place to look right. for value. You're, right. That that defines the price point, and you have to look below that. But. But we have great red suggestions and white suggestions, you know, which I tell all my listeners, we post on our social media sites. I'll kind of go over everything and post all of that. Um, Alan, I want to talk about the book, which is really why I reached out to you, because I saw that you had recently published it. Um, The book is called Burgundy Vintages, A History from 1845. It recently came out, and we'll talk about how to get it and where it's available. I know you self-publish it. Um, tell me why you wrote this book and now. Um, it actually came about uh, in a bit of a happenstance manner, I suppose, like a lot of uh, ideas that wouldn't necessarily seem obvious at first. And you know, next thing you know, um, it exists, but about 12, 14 years ago, I don't know, I went to a, an incredible dinner uh, at a domain that still has a lot of 19th century wine. Um, it has more than anywhere else in the world. It's called the Bouchard Perry Feast. And they uh, had a, a group of us uh, there, and they had some wines. Uh, I think we went as far back as uh, 1846. And uh, I happened to uh, bump into a friend of mine uh, the next day who just said, hey, what'd you do last night? And so I said, well, actually, I had this incredible dinner and uh, <laughs> I ticked off some of the uh, the amazing rarities that uh, I had the privilege to try. And he said, you know, one day there's not going to be any of those left. And somebody 
um, should try and chronicle what it's like to drink um, wines that have more than 100 years old or in some cases were made even before the age of phylloxera, which radically changed um, the world of, of, uh, of wine. And at the time he said it, I kind of went, yeah, yeah that's, a, that's an interesting idea. But then the more I started toying with the idea, uh, I started to say, you know, I, I think if we expand the idea to beyond simply saying, here's what's drinking these old vintages or old wines, that you could actually come up with something much more comprehensive uh, by writing about the history of Burgundy, but using vintages as a navigational tool to say that this is what it used to be, um, and here's where we are today. And the book lays out, um, because it starts in 1845, and the reason it starts there is because that's the oldest Burgundy that I've, I've tasted. Right. And so there are 17 decades that are covered by the book because we go until 2015. Uh, by the way, I should mention that I uh, wrote this with my co-author, um, a gentleman um, that lives in New York by the name of uh, Doug Barzillet. That's well known to, I think, to collectors. I think Doug is going to be doing some stuff at La Paule this week in New York. Yes, he is, actually. So look out um, he has him. a seminar that he's, he's giving on the book. Right. Anyway, um, in the 17 decades, because um, for me, this represents 20 years of research. I've always been fascinated by the history of Burgundy, and it lays out decade by decade all of the things that were considered to be the state of the art. And then you bring in a lot of external um, influences and pressures and crises that occurred um, during each of these successive periods. Cultural, economic. what it used to be like. Yes. Like cultural, economic, um, precisely. Te technological, how that had an effect. Absolutely. Um, and even though wine is a making wine, is a basic process that involves yeast turning sugar into to alcohol and adding all these other flavor elements, um, it's actually a, a fascinating story with what happened in Burgundy, um, because for basically 140 out of the 170-year period that's covered, um, most small vineyards barely survived. And it's only in the last 30 years where this infatuation, worldwide infatuation with the wines of Burgundy um, have occurred, partially because the quality has improved so much, but right. partially because... Um, it is one of the few places where consumers believe that they can get authenticity, you know, back to this whole notion of, of terroir, because, and I'm not criticizing Bordeaux, um, but when one <laughs> chateau can buy another one and then use its own name, it's hard to argue that you're really dealing with um, terroir. It's mostly that you're dealing with a specific mark, um, or a brand that makes wine in a certain way. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but it's hard to argue um, that you're actually talking about um, the characteristics of terroir. And I think that Burgundy is so popular today because people are looking for that touch of authenticity. And that is Burgundy's strength. And that's why I continue to argue that um, technique is never going to be nearly as important in, in 
Burgundy as it might be elsewhere. Right. But back to the book for a moment. The idea is to have explained in a way that I we hope at least um, is coherent um, to help readers understand why Burgundy is the way it is today. Um, you know, Aubert de Vilaine, who is, for those that may not have heard his name, is the co-director of the Domaine de Romani-Fonti, has long argued that in order to understand Burgundy, you have to understand Burgundy's history. And I think that is absolutely correct. And that is what vintages, which is what uh, we we call this book uh, for short, um, has endeavored to do. Right. Um, we have to wrap up soon, but I want you to um, uh, answer this one last question, and then we'll tell people where and how they can find the book. When you open up the book, um, how is it laid out? Is it laid out vintage by vintage? I mean, I know it, yes. is, but I want you to, you know, explain. I mean, you start with your first vintage, and um, that's what consumes the 600 or so pages, right? Correct. Each vintage. Uh, it's basically um, chronological. We start, um, actually, we start in the, um, in the 18th century um, just to set the table. Um, right. This well, is the history, where the like state of the art was at the at the moment. Then we jump to 1845, and then there is a progressive um, discussion of technique, style of wine, um, and it's not just uh, technically speaking. It also is that there are the cultural um, element of Burgundy. I mean the what was considered a great wine in the 19th century isn't necessarily the same vision of beauty, of vinous beauty that we would think right. about today. And so we discuss the evolution of cultural implications in Burgundy as well. Right, um, which makes it interesting. All right, so Alan, um, the book Burgundy Vintages, A History from 1845, if my listeners would like to purchase the book, how do they do that? They would go to my website, which is www.berghound.com. B-U-R-G-H-O-U-N-D, like it sounds, berghound.com. Correct. Go ahead. And you will see a link saying purchase vintages. Uh, and the, the books are here in L.A., and we then uh, would expedite them to anyone who was interested uh, within a day or two. Okay. Um, so first printing. We have another one coming. Uh, we've already ordered a second printing. Um, congratulations. Are, thank you. Um, that's gratifying because as a self-publisher, uh, you never know exactly how many to order. Right. Um, so we, uh, the reception has been so good thus far. I'm very happy and gratified to, uh, to say uh, that we've already put in an order for a second run. And on that site, there's a couple other things I'll tell my listeners. Um, you should subscribe to it, but even if you don't, there's a ton of information. And also, if you're interested in subscribing to Alan's uh, quarterly uh, newsletter and all that, that's the same site. Um, you know, Alan is the Berghound. That's the book. The site is there. Um, Alan, we got to wrap up. I told you it was going to go quick. Um, let me just do a few closing things. Um, if 
If you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at samatthegrapenation.com. That's samatthegrapenation.com. You can follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation. Follow us uh, on Instagram at the hashtag The Grape Nation and at S. Ben Ruby. On Twitter, we're at Ben Ruby and the hashtag The Grape Nation. Um, I will post on our social media a lot of the information um, that Alan told us about. Now, Alan, I usually ask my uh, listeners to do a wine list. I think what I may do is I think I may send you the wine list off air, ask you to please um, answer it, and then I will post it on our social media, on Facebook and all that. I think people each week love to hear what our uh, guests are drinking, and I'm not going to let you get away with it, even though we didn't have time. Um, so we c you could find the book at www.berghound.com. Um, and what else? Social media? Can we find you on social media, Alan? Um, Facebook. I'm just under my own name, Alan Meadows. Okay. Um, most of what I do there, 99% of what I put um, is wine-related. So it's okay. not... I think that's what Even though it's want. under my own name, it's not really a personal page. Okay. Um, all right. Thank you to our guest, Alan Meadows. Alan is the Berghound. Look out for his new book. Thank you to our engineer, Amanda, as always. And everyone at the Heritage Radio Network, I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com backslash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.